Hey, thanks so much for listening to this message. My name is Jason, and I'm one of the ministers here at the Madison Church of Christ. It's our hope and prayer that the teaching from God's Word you hear today will bless your life and draw you closer to Him. If you're ever in the Madison, Alabama area, we'd love for you to worship with us on Sundays at 8.30 or 10.30 a.m. If you have any other questions about the Bible or want to know more about the Madison Church, find us at madisonchurch.org. Be sure to also check out our Bible study podcast, Madison Church of Christ Bible Studies. Thanks again for stopping by. It's really hard to explain the full impact of grandparents. In fact, if you were to open up your Bible, even to the very first book of the Bible, which is the book of Genesis, you will see that probably, well, most likely the person or persons that have had the greatest impact in this world have been grandmas and grandpas. In fact, if you're with us last week, Brandon did an awesome job sharing with us about a guy in the Bible named Hezekiah. And what was amazing about Hezekiah, if you remember back in his history, is that his own father was a very evil guy named Jotham. But what was interesting about Hezekiah, even though his father was not the greatest guy, Hezekiah took some amazing steps of faith. And here's what's interesting. So did his granddad. That for Hezekiah, he resembled more his grandfather than his own father. See, therein lies part of the blessing, the hope, and the expectation that comes with grandparents. In fact, what's neat is not just the blessing that grandparents give, but also the way that they live with eyes that are so incredibly hopeful, seeing that there's an opportunity in the next generation. In fact, we even jokingly talk about this when we hear grandparents or parents say something like, well, he's definitely not good enough to marry my daughter, or, you know, she's definitely not good enough to marry my son. But then all of a sudden they get married and they have grandkids, and those grandkids are the most marvelous human beings that have ever walked the face of the earth. See, they have those very hopeful eyes, those eyes that are filled with expectation, Today, we're going to talk about two people in the Bible. One of those was a biological grandparent, and the other one was one that a lot of you maybe had growing up, maybe an older man or an older woman at the congregation that took you under their wing and became that grandparent. See, the beauty of grandparents and the things that we're going to see today from the life of Enoch and the life of a lady named Naomi is they are great people to walk with. They're great people to stay with. I don't know if you've ever walked with a grandparent before, or maybe you've walked with one of your parents, and you've noticed how as you walk with them, yeah, their pace might be slower, but you don't even start to really notice that pace because what you notice is what they notice. See, they start to highlight things that you've missed. They point out certain details of history or the Bible or even things in nature, things that you and I have passed by for years. They truly understand what it looks like to walk. But the other thing that I think about when I think about grandparents is they are such great people to stay with. I think about my own kids. They absolutely love to go to their grandparents' house. In fact, I know for me growing up, it was a highlight. In fact, I know this is a weird memory, but don't we all have like certain maybe memories that maybe are smells or feels when it comes to grandma's house or grandpa's house? Mine was a feel. Uh, my grandmother, my dad's mom, lived in a farmhouse on, surrounded by farmland. And 
they had this couch. And I'm pretty sure every grandma has had this couch. It's wooden sides, and the fabric is the scratchiest fabric on the face of the earth. And if you didn't feel that fabric, it's only because your couch was covered in plastic. So, you know, usually those were the couches. And what's interesting about that couch is that was the most uncomfortable couch to sit on and to feel against your neck. But yet, when I was at her house, despite the fact that that couch was so incredibly uncomfortable, that I felt so comforted being there. Like, I'll never forget, we would get there after uh, we would leave school, usually on a Friday. We would stop at a Mexican restaurant in Columbus. So we were full showing up at grandma's house. And without doubt, every single time we got to her house, she had food prepared. And I'm not talking like she warmed up some stuff. I remember poppy seed chicken casserole, broccoli and cheddar casserole, Texas hash, a ham. Like what in the world? It's nine o'clock at night. But, but she invited you and had that kind of Lydia feel that she, she gave you her hospitality and you wanted to stay. That grandparents are great people to walk with. They're great people to stay with. I want to look at two of those this morning. And the first one is this, a guy in the Bible, we don't really talk about a lot, but his name is Enoch. And what was interesting is what little is said about Enoch tells you a lot about Enoch. And this is what the Bible says. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Then notice this detail. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. Now, the reason I want to point that out is it says in the text that he starts walking with God after what? He becomes a father. Now, the way I find that interesting is maybe in your own life, you've noticed this detail, that maybe before you had kids, you weren't very an emotional person. Then you had kids, all of a sudden you become emotional about things you had never become emotional about. Maybe even for some of you, the way you take communion has been completely different since you've had kids because I think part of what happens is you start to see yourself in them, but you also see God and the world around you completely different. We don't know what it was with Enoch, but there was something about having this child that maybe I guess like I experienced and a lot of you have probably experienced too, that when you see that God has blessed you with this child, you also understand that with that blessing comes a huge responsibility and you start to know, hey, things in me have to change. I've got to grow. And so Enoch, we don't know what it was, but it says this, that for 300 years, he had other sons and daughters, thus walked the days of Enoch were 365 years. He walked with God. Whenever the Bible says somebody walked with God, that is one of the greatest compliments that could ever be given. In fact, the Bible only mentions four people in the entire Bible that were given this kind of compliment. And and the reason why walking with somebody is such an incredible compliment is that when the Bible uses the term walk, it usually speaks of several things. It speaks of intimacy, fellowship, obedience, and friendship. Think back to the Garden of Eden. You remember when Adam and Eve had taken that fruit and realizing what they did, what did they do? They hid. And in their hiding, the Bible says this, that they heard God walking in the garden. That is so amazing to me because there's a lot of stuff walking in the garden. There was lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, a lot of stuff was there. How did they know that that was the steps of God, not a step of a lion? Well, I'll tell you why. Because there was intimate fellowship. There was friendship. There was intimacy. They had walked with him before. 
It was those kind of people that knew that God was directing and guiding my steps. Even though I don't know what, what everything looks like next, I'm still going to trust him, not mile by mile, but I'm going to trust him step by step. When you think about somebody getting this compliment and you look at their life, what you're going to notice, walking with God is not something that happens by accident. See, whenever we walk, it requires a few things. One of those, of course, is an endpoint, a destination. That's what I've loved about my grandparents is their ability to see long-term, to see things, again, that I, and maybe you too, have missed. One of my favorite quotes on this is that every single person ends up somewhere, but few people end up somewhere on purpose. It's not a question of where we're, if we're going to end up somewhere. Oh, we are. But do you like the destination? Do you like where it is that you're going? And we think, well, well, one day this is going to happen. That's not how life works. Like future you is just an exaggerated version of current you. The decisions you're making, where your eyes are fixed now is what you're going to become. I think about what Paul said in Philippians 3.14. He said, I press towards that goal. He didn't say it's easy. He didn't say I go mile by mile. It, it oftentimes is that step by step. Walking also requires a path. It requires along that road to get some instruction. I have been so fascinated to see how there have been times where I've maybe told my kids something, but then the grandparents say it, and they're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, wait, oh, we just said that. Like, but, but coming from them, it, it just means more. And I, th I think part of it, too, is, yes, the, the level of respect is high, but I think they also know that they've seen things. Grandparents have the blessing of experiencing so much of life to, to give a guidance where guidance is needed. You know, uh, when I was at uh, Faulkner, my very last semester before Lorian and I uh, got married, I, uh, so I was a ministry major and a PE major. And kind of, I know those two don't go together, but actually they do with youth ministry. But anyway, so, uh, um, and I remember the school that I was going to do my student teaching at was the largest junior high in the state of Alabama, but it was also known to be the poorest junior high in the state of Alabama. It was 98% free reduced lunch. And I'll never forget, I showed up at that um, school uh, to do my student teaching with my binder full of lesson plans. And when I showed the guy what I was planning to do, he kind of was trying not to laugh at me. And he said, you know, I, I'm sure what you got in there is great. But what I want to encourage you with, if you really want to connect with these young men, because they divided P up against the boys and the girls. He said, if you really want to connect with these young men, what I'm telling you might surprise you. This guy had been teaching there for 35 years. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give them some loving, strict discipline. I was like, wait, what? I'm like, that's not what I was expecting. I was going to teach them about how to kick a ball. He's like, no, that, that, that's not what they want. That's not what they need. And I'll never forget what he said. I've, I've kept this in my mind. He said, these boys crave discipline, whether they realize it or not. And I've never forgotten that because that's me. That's you. We all crave guidance. We all crave discipline, whether we realize it or not. Walking requires that kind of path. The other thing walking requires is a pace. Now, I'm not a good one to talk to about how to create a good pace in life, because one thing that my family knows about me is I'm a very, very fast walker. In fact, as I was getting ready for this lesson, I wanted you to, I guess, answer the question, are you somebody that's easy to walk with? 
Because if you're like me, one of the things I'm very guilty of is walking ahead, not with. And, and there's a history behind it. When I was uh, a kid, I had asked dad, I was like, dad, you know, whenever I walk with you, like I'm out of breath. I feel like I'm running. And he said, well, what happened was uh, when uh, your granddad um, was on the farm, you know, he would walk up and down those rows. And this was before the days where you had like those, you know, big trucks to pull up all the crops for you. He said, you know, he was pulling them by hand. And so he's walking super fast down every single one of those rows. And I'm trying to keep up with him on the next row over. And I don't want to look like I can't keep up. So I was used to walking with him. Well, it turns out my dad didn't stop even when we go to Walmart. He's walking fast. And then uh, we were on a family vacation at an amusement park where families are supposed to have so much fun. But I kept catching myself and finding myself walking like 20 yards ahead. And, and one of the things that we started jokingly talk about is that they were like, you know, Dad, we're back. I'm, like, I'm sorry. Here we are. I'm supposed to be enjoying this time with my family, but I'm guilty of walking ahead and so we thought, well, if we put daddy behind the stroller, and if he pushes the stroller, surely that will slow him down. It did not. And then I think one of my kids had a really good suggestion. The only thing that would help is if we put daddy in the stroller. Um, so, but here we are in a moment where it's about the family, about spending time together, but I'm walking ahead of them. If we're not careful, we can walk so far ahead of certain things. And we have a breakneck speed a lot of times we live with in life. And I think the world tells us as we compliment each other on, well, how's your day? Busy? Well, how's your day? Busy? And we're like, that's the greatest badge of honor. I don't know if God is that impressed. That, that sometimes one of the greatest blessings that we can have is a slow down pace walking in step with God. The amazing thing about Enoch is not that he just did this. But he did this for 300 years. Like if we sat here and said, Enoch walked with God for 30, we would be impressed. But for somebody to do it for 300, and here's what's even more amazing. He walked with God at a time when most people did not walk with God. In fact, if you look at the context right after this, as it's going through the genealogy, it sets up Genesis 6, and it describes a world that was so corrupt. It was a terrible place to live. People were hurting themselves. They were hurting each other. And this is the world that Enoch was walking with God in. But what was amazing that no matter the culture pressure, no matter what they were going through, there was some lesson evidently that Enoch taught his son Lamech, and evidently Lamech taught his son Noah. Remember at the very beginning, I told you there's only four people in the Bible that describes them as walking with God. One of those is Enoch, and the other is his grandson, Noah. Have you ever been told that you look like your grandma? You look like your grandpa? Uh, one of the things that my family likes to do is to compare pictures of what we look like and like what I look like compared to what my uh, uncle and aunt looked like to my grandparents, all of those kinds of things. And we were at um, my mom and dad's house uh, probably about uh, two or three years ago, and Lorianne saw a picture of my granddad. And so she actually sent me this. She made it black and white. Um, um, but this is a picture of my mom's dad. Um, and I didn't have the opportunity to know him or meet him. And if you were with us last week when Brandon did a, an awesome job of sharing with us about how 
he hadn't even known much of his granddad, yet the influence and impact of his granddad was still felt. So when my grandma died a few years ago, we were going through her apartment and there was a lot of stuff we were going through and we found this box. And the box was actually something that we looked at that we kind of realized that had not been opened a long time, likely was put together by my granddad. And so we start going through these pages and we come across a very official page that was given to him by the United States government. Now we, we knew he served, but like he didn't really talk about it. We, we opened this piece of paper and realized that he had served in Normandy, the Battle of the Bulge. But what was also amazing, he had received seven bronze stars and three different medals. And it mentions on that thing that he had not even requested any of those stars or any of those medals. Now, nothing wrong with requesting those stars or requesting those medals, but kind of like Brandon felt with his granddad, when I was sitting there reading that, like this man that I had never met, this man that I had never known, it it encouraged me, it empowered me. I I don't know the level of face-to-face time that Noah experienced when he, with, with Enoch, but, but there must have been something that made a huge difference in him. We, we use the phrase a lot of times, legacy. And, and I love what John Maxwell said when he said this, that what you do is your history, but what you set in motion is your legacy. And, and I think about Judges 2.10. I mean, this, that's an example of a legacy gone bad. It said there grew up a generation that did not know the Lord or the things that he had done for Israel. So there's this one generation that said, listen, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to share about it. Isn't that kind of scary to think it could be one generation away of a group of people that decide not to share, not to talk? But then you see an opposite picture in Psalm 78 when it talks about a parable, excuse me, a psalm about the coming generation where the psalmist says this, I'm going to open my mouth in a parable, a story. I'm going to even utter dark sayings from the old, saying I'm going to share some difficult things. Things that have been heard and known that our fathers have told us. And here's what we're going to do. We are not going to hide them from their children, but we're going to tell them to the next generation. And by the way, the next verse I love so much, it says that God established a testimony in Jacob. He's saying that even the hard things that Jacob experienced, the hard things that Jacob went through, the Lord used those and redeemed those to set up a legacy with him. You you don't have to be wealthy to have a legacy. It's not about monetary riches. But the other thing is you don't have to have a squeaky clean past either to leave a legacy. In fact, one of the things that I think about that uh, an article I came across this week was about this guy, Chuck Colson. Uh, Some of you might know him. He was popular for the Watergate scandal, being involved in that with Richard Nixon. He got put in prison for his wrongdoing, impacting the whole nation and himself. But here's what's interesting about Chuck. While he was in prison, he came to know the Lord. And when he came to know the Lord in that prison, he decided that he wanted other people to get to know the Lord in prison too. And so he started two organizations that are still around today that leave the doors of prisons open for churches to walk through, to have worship services and to teach prisoners. 
This man did not have a squeaky clean past, but he was still able to leave a legacy. What was it about Enoch? Well, I think there, there was something to show there. There was something to see. There's really only three main places in Scripture we read about this guy. And then that amazing that, and, and also encouraging that when we think of life and experiencing so much, we might point to quantity, but, but here in this guy's life that doesn't mention a whole lot, it's more about the quality of what he did. To me, it says so much more that it's not mentioning his resume. But the other thing is this, that grandparents, I want you to also understand, not only do you have something to show us, but you have something to tell us. I found this so interesting. If you look at the backstory of Enoch's life, you get to Jude, and in Jude 13 and 14, kind of seemingly random, it tells about how Jude told prophecies of judgment. Well, where did we get those prophecies of judgment? Because like, there's no other scriptures that talk about that. We only have two sources, the book of Enoch, which is a non-canonized book of the Bible. But then there's this other historian. And by the way, this to me is an incredible apologetic proof of the existence of God and the power of scripture. There's an ancient historian named Tertullian, excuse me. And Tertullian wrote a lot of the books that your kids might have in their world history books. That Tertullian, one of the things that he mentioned is that the prophecies of Enoch were put on the ark taken off the ark, and the next thing that we hear is that they start circulating those prophecies amongst the apostles. And then the Jewish leaders were so threatened by Jesus, guess what they try to destroy? Those writings that were being passed around. His words outlived him. His life outlived him. When I read stuff like a legacy you leave is something that will last two to 300 years, that is so incredibly encouraging. But if you're like me, it's also incredibly challenging, isn't it? The second thing is this. Let's look at Naomi. She was somebody that was invited to stay with her family, and she stayed with them. And we don't talk a lot about the backstory of Naomi, because if there's one word to talk about the backstory of Naomi, it's bitter. But therein lies the beauty of a checkered past, a legacy that God can use. See, Naomi was living with her husband, Imelech, in Bethlehem. And they were living there when there was a famine. And this was about 1300 BC. And the reason why that's an important date is when they were in Bethlehem, they looked at the beautiful area of Moab that according to a lot of geography, you could see Moab from Bethlehem. And so they're living in famine, see the lush beauty of what's going on in Moab. And they're like, man, I want to go over there. But here's the problem with Moab. Do you know who was one of the leaders in 1300 BC? King Eglin. Do y'all remember him? He was the guy that we talked about that the Bible says, and he was a what? A very fat man. But what was highlighted was not his weight or his size, really, but what was highlighted the most was how cruel of a leader he was. But yet they were going through a famine, so Naomi and Imelech said, well, let's just go check it out. So it says they sojourned. And it's kind of like the book of Psalms talks about that we don't move into situations overnight. We first walk with people we shouldn't. They start to sojourn and they move in. But the way you kind of look at the story unfolding, it's more like not that they moved into Moab, but more like Moab moved into them. So they move over there, Imelech and Naomi do, and their two sons marry two Moabite women. 
And then Naomi's husband dies, and then her two sons die. Isn't that sad? I mean, they went there to live. Now they've died. And and if you open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1, verse 15, Naomi says, hey, I'm going to go back. And in an incredible statement of compassion, this is one of those very Hobby Lobby verses, but I want to give you the context. In Ruth 1, Ruth speaks up in verse 16 as Naomi's getting ready to leave. Because all, keep in mind, Naomi is just her and her two daughters-in-law that were Moabites. Ruth said, do not get me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I'm going to go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your people are going to be my people and your God is going to be my God. And where you die, that's where I'm going to die. That's incredible. And maybe you would have thought that's going to set something off within Naomi. And I do think God was working in her heart right there, but it still took her time because you go to verse 22. And and even as she's showing up back in Bethlehem, she's not showing up in the best of moods. In fact, what she says is this. She said, well, if you would rather like to call me something, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant and beautiful. I want you to call me Mara, which means bitter. And if you continue to read the text, she's really not bitter about the poor choices she made, but she's more bitter at God. And isn't that kind of what we do, that when we make poor decisions, it's easy to blame, isn't it? That bitterness can open up the door to blaming. But yet, and I hate to spoil the story for you, you get to the very end, and it's almost like the whole book is building up to chapter 4, where this lady who was bitter goes from bitter to blessed, where they're going to put a baby in her lap that's going to be the granddad of King David in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Like, wait, what happened in the middle? Well, I'll tell you what happened in the middle is exactly kind of what happens in our middle. That we've all gone through a heart journey of sorts to get to where we are. See, one of the things that Naomi did that started to make things turn for the better was this. She allowed Ruth to meet her physical needs. If you look in the text that Ruth said, hey, I want to help you. I want to provide for you. And I know this is a little detail, but if you've ever been through grief or you've ever gone through something incredibly difficult, it is really difficult to put sometimes yourself in the posture of being okay with being helped. Because a lot of times we you know, in a very independent culture, we try to just fix it ourselves. But this was one of the most important first steps she took is, is I'm going to let somebody else help me. The second thing is this. Naomi started to shift her focus a little bit from herself to other people. In fact, you see in chapter 3, her focus starts to be supporting her daughter-in-law. She wasn't blood. But she sees that she's in this opportunity with this guy named Boaz. And Boaz is the, the one working in this field that Ruth's on. And, and I've been amazed whenever I read that text how Naomi starts to urge her to go after and pursue Boaz. Can you imagine how difficult that would have been for her? Because part of you probably think she's experiencing in her own mind, well, that should have been my own son. But yet she still supports and comes alongside of her. I mean, that's amazing to me. And the reason why I want to highlight that is anytime you go through a dark time, it is incredibly difficult to see past yourself. 
But one of the things that I read this past week that I thought was really interesting from a Christian counselor is they highlighted that if you go through grief or a moment of difficulty, when you start being more focused on other people, this is what the counselor said, that is a tall tale sign that you're going in the right direction. And the next thing she did is she opened herself up to being loved again. And that's difficult when you've been hurt. And so Naomi has this amazing heart journey. She's supporting Ruth. She's supporting Boaz, kind of coming alongside both of them. And the way the story starts, it's amazing to see this woman go from a very bitter lady to a very blessed lady because of what was happening in her heart. And so it gets to this point, and one of the commentaries I read said, Whenever we preach or teach on Ruth, we usually focus on one through three. But if you look at the whole book, it's really pointing to chapter four, this moment. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a renewal of life and a nourisher of your old age. I want you to hold on to that phrase, uh, renewal. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. This is a famous painting of this scene, and the person that painted it purposefully made her face dark and dreary um, to show what she had been through, but made her shirt lighter to show this picture that light was coming into a dark situation. Here's why I, I mention all of that, is that what seems to dominate this book, which is three chapters of hardship, What we see the Lord doing in her life, in her heart, is something that is absolutely incredible. He is establishing through this lady that is not even biologically connected to this next generation that she is blessing roots. I love what was mentioned this morning by Jason. That was a fantastic job this morning, by the way. But in 2 Timothy, one of the things that Paul talks about, he said, before I instruct you on how to instruct other people, I want you to go back to your roots. Isn't that interesting? To go back, to to remember where you came from in order to understand what you need to do next. But do you remember in that text where those women brought that baby to Naomi? This lady who had been bitter, that had been so frustrated by all the circumstances of life. And they said to her that this child is going to be for you a renewal. It's amazing to think back to this story. And as you go through Naomi's and you go through Enoch's, look at the lineage. It's impressive, right? But what I want you to notice about both of these people is, yes, they're well-known for their lineage, but they're also well-known for their legacy. Every single one of us in this room are setting things in motion. Every single one of us are going to end up somewhere. But very few people actually end up somewhere on purpose. Maybe you're here today and you've never made the decision to put on Christ in baptism. As we were going through the service this morning, and one of the things Jason mentioned made me think of a man that was on his way to preach at the Pelham Church of Christ in South Georgia named John Elder. 
Some of you actually know him. He used to be the preacher at the Beatty Road Church of Christ in Albany, or as you say down there, Albany or something like that. But he was on his way to preach, and he, he noticed that my granddad had a lot of kids at the house, but they weren't getting ready to go to worship anywhere. He pulled off, knocked on his door, and said, hey, it's kind of upfront for me to say this, but I, I noticed you don't have your kids in, in the church, or you don't really go anywhere Man, you got to get those kids in a, in a, in a church family, and, and you do too. I, I, you know, I'd love to sit down and study with you. They studied that afternoon, and he ended up baptizing my granddad and several of his siblings. That he was a man that had lived so much of his life, but was starting a brand new legacy. Maybe some of you have never made that decision. Maybe there's some of you that are here today that maybe you feel a little bit like Naomi. There's bitterness in here. That if we allow ourselves to love again, to be loved again, to see past ourselves and see the value in other people, we too can move from bitter to blessed. So whatever it is that you have a need of today, please come while we stand and we sing this song.